Thanks for joining us today for the Eagle Drive Baptist Church podcast with Pastor Chris Thorne. Eagle Drive is a Bible-believing New Testament Baptist Church where Jesus is preeminent and the gospel of grace is at center stage. We are devoted to connecting with God, growing together, serving others, and sharing our faith. If you would like to know more about our ministry, visit EagleDriveBaptist.com. Now, here's today's message. Ephesians chapter 4 is where we'll be tonight. Ephesians chapter 4. Anyone cold? All right, just a couple people. All right, very good. This is Texas, right? You guys are used to it. Not really. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4 tonight. Ephesians chapter 4. I don't know about you, and I've said this many times before, but Wednesday is a very difficult day for me. I just get very tired, very exhausted. I don't know if it's the study or if it's just Wednesday or I don't know what it is. So, uh, Lord willing, I will not fall asleep while I'm preaching. That would be a first, uh, but hopefully that doesn't happen tonight. Uh, I want to review quickly what we've talked about because the past several weeks, as we've been in chapter 4, remember this is kind of the transition portion of Ephesians. The first three chapters are all about our identity in Christ. 4 through 6 is all about the application, as the series title suggests, being engaged, uh, shaping our identity to live out the gospel. Uh, it's very important. But chapter 4, specifically verses 1 through 16, is all about our spiritual health. It's the spiritual health of the church. Uh, and we've asked the question many times. We're not going to necessarily ask it to be answered tonight. But what makes a church healthy? And there's a lot of different characteristics that make a church healthy. I listed off several of those last week for you. Uh, but there's three things specifically in this chapter that we've been looking at. A healthy church is marked by spiritual unity, as we've talked about in verses 1 through 6. It's marked by spiritual diversity, which is in verses 7 through 12. We're all diverse, have diverse gifts, unique gifts, unique talents. And then what we're going to hit on tonight and finish up this section is this healthy church is marked by spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity, uh, verses 13 through 16. Uh, before we get into these verses, let me ask this question, because we hit on this last week. Is every member of the church a minister? Sounds like a trick question, but it's not. Is every member of the church a minister? Yes. Let me give you a hint. Yes. Okay, I turned yes. two of you, and still some of you guys have no clue what I'm talking about. Yes, what I mean is we are called to minister. We are called to carry forth the message of the gospel. And I'm, I'm not going to hit all of what we talked about last week. Please go back on the app or our, our uh, website or Facebook and watch that, listen to it, and you'll understand. Uh, I want to read something that I didn't have a chance to read. It was an illustration uh, last week that kind of hits on this a little bit more in depth. Um, is every church or every member of your church a minister? Yes. I want, you, I want you to listen to this challenging story of a group of Christians who discovered their spiritual gift and began to minister, to serve, to be engaged in their local church. Because as we've talked about, there are certain officers, certain aspects of the church that are leadership positions. As I mentioned last week, as the pastor, uh, it's my job, my primary job is to equip the saints. It doesn't mean I'm not working, but as I'm working, we're all working together. But anyway, here's the illustration. A church, of my observation, had experienced consecutive years of progressive growth. As attendances increased, buildings were added, and the ministerial staff was enlarged. It appeared that there would never be an end to the financial increase. But then the bottom dropped out of oil prices, and the area slipped rapidly into its own recession. Every possible cost-cutting measure was implemented, including drastic staff reductions. 
The pastor expected uh, severe negative responses from the congregation when services that they had taken for granted were no longer available. Instead, the people testified, and this is good. They said, we, we are spoiled brats who have been waited on hand and foot by our paid staff. Now it's time for us to go to work. The church not only went on, but it strengthened its family relationships and drew new members into its ranks, even though most of the professionals were gone. Getting the people involved in the work of the ministry proved to be a needed tonic for that congregation, for they had been overfed and under-exercised for a long season. And I like that because that's the truth. All of us are to be ministers, to be servants in the church. We all have a job to do. And it's very important, as, as the, it says, the church is to have an every-member ministry. Every member of the local church should be involved in ministry. But I've seen it so often, as I, as I referenced last week, I've seen it so often, I'm sure you have as well, where people just come because they want to be fed. And that's important to be fed, but it's not our job just to come and sit. It is our job to come and to serve. And it's my job, and I, I take it very seriously, to try to equip, to try to grow, to try to train and help people to understand what their job is. My job is to, to teach you to unlock your unique gifts and utilize your potential so that God's church can go forward. And the great question that we kind of ended last week was this. What are we doing with the gifts that God has given us? Because every single one of us has a gift. As I've mentioned many times before, sarcastically, my spiritual gift is sarcasm. That's not it. But all of us have a unique gift. How many know what your spiritual gift is? Anybody? All right, we got like four people that know what your spiritual gift is. Um, there are tests that we can take, and we'll, we'll get to those at a later time. But the truth is, every member of the local church of the body of Christ should know what your spiritual gift is. Why? Let me ask that question. Amanda, you raised your hand. You know what your spiritual gift is. Why do you think every member should know what their spiritual gift is? Exactly. So you know what your gift is, so you can utilize it and be able to serve, but most people, as was referenced, most people don't know what their spiritual gift is. Maybe they've never taken the time to understand what the spiritual gift is, they've never been taught on it. So again, it helps me understand that, okay, we have a job to do, we need to do better at that, but it's utilizing the gift. God has gifted you if you are a Christian, if you're a child of God. He has gifted you to serve in the local body of Christ, and to use your gift. And as we've referenced before, and as Paul has referenced, when one member is not acting and functioning as part of the body of Christ, who suffers? Everyone, the whole church, all of us together. So it's very important to understand that it's not just the paid staff that's supposed to be doing everything, right? It's all of us collectively. And again, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to last week, because I think it would really help you to do that. So again, we all have a job to do. Uh, Warren Wearsby said in his commentary on this passage, he said, the gifted leaders are supposed to equip the saints unto the work of the ministry, unto the building of the body of Christ. The saints do not call a pastor and pay him to do the work. They call him and follow his leadership as he, through the word of God, equips them to do the job. The members of the church grow by feeding on the Word of God and ministering to each other. So it's very important that we minister one to another. 
And again, many of you in here have understood what your spiritual gift is. You've unlocked it. You're using it. You're serving. Many of you may not have, and it's, that's okay. We'll, we'll try to cultivate that over the next several months and, and years together to understand that. But whether you understand it right now or not, should you still be serving? Yes, you should. And it's not, again, someone else's job. Well, I'm serving in this area. All of us, whether... Let me see how I should put this. All of us have a unique gift, as I've said before, but we all must be willing. That is key. We all must be willing, and I've learned that in ministry over the years. Uh, There are certain people that are very gifted, are very talented, have a lot of abilities, not necessarily a spiritual gift, and maybe they are passionate about a certain ministry. But as a servant of God... Should we not all just be willing to serve in any area, any capacity? Yes, we should. To me, that is the mark of a true disciple. Uh, One of the marks of a true disciple is that willingness to serve. And really, it comes to this. It comes to humility, right? Because you think about Jesus, what did he do? He humbled himself and was willing to show us an example to wash his disciples' feet. Jesus didn't have to do that. He is God's son. He was God in flesh, but yet he showed us what service looks like. Now, Jesus, again, was very gifted in a lot of areas, as he should be, because he is Jesus, the Son of God. But he showed us what a Christian, a child of God, should look like. All right, now let's jump back into the lesson tonight. Verse number 13. Let's go ahead and read this, follow along, verses 13 through 16. Till we all come in the unity of the faith. Again, hitting on this unity again, because verses 1 through 16 really is all about unity. Unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, excuse me, the head even Christ, from whom the whole body, it's talking about the local church, fitly joined together and compacted by the which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying itself in love. Verse 13 kind of sets the stage for us tonight. And when you think of the church, we talked about it last week, we kind of think about an architectural model. Now think of unity within the believers as the width. In a sense, the church is only as wide as it is unified. And get this down. Unity is what characterizes our spiritual growth. Unity is what characterizes our spiritual growth. If unity is what should characterize a church, let me ask this question. Why is it that so many churches are characterized by strife and contention and division and personal preference? Everybody wants their own thing. They're not unified. That's really what it comes down to. But unity is what characterizes a church and really what characterizes our spiritual growth. So a church should be characterized by their unity. But many of us, if not all of us, could say, uh, tell stories of how a church was disunified. So that is not a mark of spiritual growth. That is not a mark of a healthy church as we've talked about. And I've got a couple things written down. Churches are divided over a lot of things. Theology, uh, politics, leadership, music style, finances, ministry opportunities, community involvement, uh, what is and isn't sin, uh, numerous other issues. It sometimes seems that there is nothing the church will not argue about. It's kind of funny, but it's true, right? And I've been in churches like that where people just love to argue. Anybody like to argue in here? Probably some of us are honest, yeah. Many of us love to argue, and 
That happens in a church. And instead of being submissive to the Holy Spirit, to His leading, to Jesus, to the structure that He has put in place, again, it goes back to that control. We want to control things. And when we try to control things, are we probably going to be in unity or not? No, we're not. We're not going to be in unity at all. And since division and strife is the default position of most of the world, a church that is known for its love and unity will be a light in the darkness, showing the world how to live in peace. How many have ever tried to build something without a plan? Anybody? I think probably most of us. Now, typically, is it best to have a plan when you're building something? Yeah. Why? Brother Ron, I'm sure you've helped with that before. Yeah. Anybody ever gone on a trip you don't know where you're going? You just I'm just gonna drive and just you know wherever I end up. No. Why not? Plans are important. You think about building things. Now I'm not really necessarily a builder, but I've built, quote unquote built. I've built things before without a plan, and usually they didn't end up too well. Uh, usually they got destroyed very quickly because I had no plan. I really had no clue what I was doing. Maybe uh, the top of the structure was too wide or too narrow, whatever, and it really didn't last. It's very important to have a plan, to understand what you're supposed to be doing. And what I've realized when you don't have a plan sometimes when you're building something, it can take a lot longer than it should take, uh, or really doesn't turn out the way it, it should have turned out in the first place. And really, we've got to correlate that with the church, because God has given the church blueprints. You know what the blueprints are? His Word. The blueprints of the church are His Word, and that's what Paul is getting at here in Ephesians chapter 4. Here are the blueprints of the church. Here is how a church should act, should function. There's a lot of other passages concerning this. But if you want to be a spiritually healthy church and a spiritually healthy member, you need to follow these things. You need to be unified. You need to understand that there is diversity, which means we are all different, but that's okay. So often we're always focused on the differences instead of how we are the same as we've referenced in the first part of chapter 4. Unity is the goal, but many argue what unity should look like in a church. But let me remind you, unity is not uniformity. It's not all being the same. True church unity is achieved when each person recognizes that everyone else has different tastes, desires, interests, and abilities. And rather than seeing these differences as weaknesses to be exploited or flaws to be fixed, this diversity is celebrated and enjoyed as part of God's plan for His church. We're all unique. We have all been shaped to serve. God has shaped us to service because we are all unique and different. And as I said last week, every member should grow up to wear a towel and not wear a bib. There's a difference. And then verse number 13, as we kind of get back to it, till we all come in the unity of the faith. Notice where our unity should be tied. The faith. Really, we can go deeper. The doctrines of God's Word. The faith is speaking of the doctrines and practices which separate true followers of Jesus from someone who is not a true follower of Jesus. And the church grows in unity when it agrees on what to believe and how to live. It is very important that a church agree on what they should believe, right? Now, they might not agree on the color of the paint, but they should agree with the principles in God's Word, the doctrines that are there. And if people in the church cannot agree on the doctrines, you're not going to have unity, are you? And it's going to cause a lot of division, a lot of strife, 
And many of us have probably seen that because I think the church should do this or follow this pattern or follow this principle. Well, does it go against God's word? Well, that doesn't really matter. That's archaic. We don't really need that. Well, we have a wrong view of God. The church grows in unity when it agrees on what to believe and how to live. But unity in faith is not the only aspect of growing in unity. Unity is also developed as we grow, as it continues, in the knowledge of Christ. Understanding who Christ is, what he wants us to do. The more we grow in our knowledge of Christ, the more we should grow in our humility. Let me repeat that. I don't think I have it in your notes. But the more we grow in our knowledge of Christ, the more we should grow in our humility. Why do you think I say that? Let me say that again. The more we grow in our knowledge of Christ, the more we should grow in our humility. Why do you think I say that? Be more like Christ? Yeah. What else? Knowledge is power. You can go on a power trip. But when you think of Christ, I guess what I'm really hitting at, when you think of Christ, I don't think of a prideful individual. Anybody? No. I think of someone who was truly humble, who showed us what humility looked like. That is not a weakness, but in a sense like meekness, it's strength under control. So to me, the more you grow in your knowledge of Christ, the deeper your humility should grow. The less pride you should have, right? So I guess if many of us struggle with our pride, maybe we haven't grown as much in our knowledge of Christ as we need to or should. Now let's continue on. The spiritual health of a church, again, is marked by unity, leads to diversity, but the result of a church's unity and diversity is the church's maturity. Maturity. And this is the, the key aspect here in this, these, these passages. And really, here's what Paul is saying, and I love this, this portion. I couldn't wait to get to it. Here's what Paul is saying. Look at verse number 15. But speaking the truth in love may... What are the next two words? Grow up. <laughs> you ever told someone to grow up? I did, like, tonight, earlier. Not my wife, but my kids. Uh, <laughs> um, this is what Paul is saying here. Hey, grow up. So let me ask this question before we dive deeper into this. Why do you typically tell people or someone to grow up? Because they're acting like a kid. We're not supposed to be a kid all of our life? No, we're not. Why else? That, that's very good. That really hits, hits, uh, hits it right on. Why else do we typically tell someone to grow up? Because they're whining? What? Learn to be more mature. Learn to be more mature. Yes, exactly. So this is what Paul is referencing. Look, the spiritual health of the church and a church member isn't just a key, it's a must. We must be spiritually healthy if we're going to be who Christ wants us to be. Paul wants the church at Ephesus, the Christians here, to grow up. And I think any parent's desire is for their child to grow up, to mature, right? You don't want that child to be a child the rest of their life. Now, there are some instances with health situations where they just can't truly mature. But if they have the capable or capability to, don't you as a parent want your child to grow up and not act like a 10-year-old the rest of their life? Yeah, I don't think any of us would want that, or a 5-year-old or a 3-year-old. I don't want Nate, as he gets older, you know, when he's like 45 years old, to still be acting like a 5-year-old. Now, I know men typically do that. Anyway, uh, I don't think men ever truly grow up, but I think you understand what I'm saying. There should be a maturity. There should be growth in an individual. You know, it's you think about um, gullibility. Uh, children are very gullible, right? It's very easy to kind of tell them something and then they believe it. I do it all the time with uh, Nate and Noah and just kind of pretend with them and, and they believe me on a lot of things. 
It's cute when they're like five years old or two years old. It's not too cute when they're like 45 years old, when they're always gullible. To me, it shows that there's a lack of maturity there. (laughs) They haven't really grown up in a lot of areas. Now go back to verse number 13. Back in verse number 13, we see the word perfect. The word Paul uses here is perfect or teleos, which is referring to arriving at an end or goal for which we were created. It is not so much arriving at the destination, but about the journey ahead. The quest for Christian maturity is an ongoing process, an ongoing journey journey to become more like Jesus. And for the next few minutes, as we close out this section, Paul mentions four traits of a spiritually mature person. And this is key. Four traits of a spiritually mature person. First one is this. Maturity involves Christ-likeness. Maturity involves Christ-likeness. Again, when I think of spiritually mature, I think there should be an evidence of maturity. An evidence that there's a cultivated relationship with Jesus Christ. The last part of verse 13 says this, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. As a disciple of Jesus, who or what is to be our measure, our standard? Jesus. So maturity involves Christ-likeness. If Jesus is the goal, then how can we become more like Jesus? Does it happen by only taking the principles that we want to apply? Or does it happen by listening and following all of the principles that God has laid out for us? All of them, right? Not just some of them. So maturity involves Christ-likeness. Get this down. We become like Christ in His fullness, as it says in this verse. This means that we strive to be like Him in every way possible. And that's a great question to ask ourselves. Are we truly striving to be like Christ in every way? Or are we only striving to be like Christ in the ways that we want to be like Christ? Back in verse number 2 of chapter 4, Paul says, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Some principles that he's already given us. Look, you can tell how spiritually mature someone is by the measure of their life. What I mean is this. Who do they imitate? Who do they pattern after? If someone is truly patterning their life after Jesus Christ they're going to be a spiritually mature Christian. But if they're patterning their life after only principles that they like and more of the world, are they going to be a spiritually mature individual? No. They're going to be immature. A spiritually mature Christian and church doesn't look more like the world. You know who they look more like? Jesus Christ. So the first thing that Paul is saying here, the first trait of a spiritually mature person in a church is it involves Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness, that's very key. The second trait is this. Maturity involves doctrinal stability. Doctrinal stability. Look at verse 14. That we henceforth be no more children. Again, there comes a time in every child's life where they must grow up, right? They must start acting like a teenager and then an adult and not like a child. Again, you don't want a five-year-old to be acting like a five-year-old for the rest of their life. You want them to develop and to grow and to grow up. I think about this with Nate and Noah. I don't want them to stay where they are. I want them to grow. 
And how do they grow? By the nurturing, by the admonition, by uh, helping them get to where they need to be. But this doctrinal stability, this goes back to verse number 13, and our need to grow in the knowledge of truth and unity of the faith. Doctrinal stability is imperative in our growth. In this verse, Paul is saying we should no longer be children thrown around with every wind of doctrine. You know, it's very easy for some people, as I said before, to be gullible. And this happens in churches to where someone, some false teacher, gives a view of the Scripture that really is completely contradictory of what the Scripture is talking about. And a spiritually immature person, you know what they'll do? They'll follow them. Because, hey, hey, they're using Bible. When I was a youth pastor, I, I dealt with this a lot. You know, I, I love social media and YouTube and stuff like that, but I had teens that would go to YouTube and, man, hey, Brother Chris, this guy was talking about this and this and this and this, and he gave all these verses, and, and I started listening to what they were saying. I was like, uh, that's not right at all. <laughs> that is so far off base. But they didn't know what they were believing. They weren't spiritually mature. They were tossed around. And that, that's what Paul is referencing here. Hey, we shouldn't be children tossed to and fro and, and well, I'm going to believe this guy at this time and I'm going to believe this guy at this time. We don't know who we believe. It's kind of like, you know, the wind is blowing right now and I'm blowing the leaves everywhere. That's kind of what we are and that's kind of how we act like. I'm going to give you a mind-blowing truth tonight. Children are not supposed to stay children forever. <laughs> children have to be taught to grow up. They need to grow up and mature so they can become productive members of society. And I have an amazing gift. It's the gift to annoy my children. Anybody else have that gift? Very good. I'm not alone. <laughs> I have that amazing gift to uh, irritate, especially Nate. Um, a lot of times, you know, he'll, he'll, he's five years old, five and a half years old, but a lot of times he'll start acting less than his age, if that makes sense. You know, he, he knows how to act and how to respond in certain things, but he starts acting like his brother that's two and a half years old. He starts whining a lot and complaining a lot. So then I treat him the way he's treating us. I start whining with him. And then he gets very irritated with that. Very mad. And I know it's probably not what I should do. And I'm not doing it really to make him mad. I'm trying to help teach him a lesson to understand, hey, you shouldn't act like that, Nate. You're five and a half years old now. You're going to school. There are certain things that you should put away. You're not two and a half year old anymore. You're not in a diaper. You've grown up. You've matured. So act like it. And I think about this. Adults. <laughs> Adults may be physically mature, but I've known many that mentally and spiritually and psycho psychologically are very immature. And I'm not saying because they have a, a, a mental problem. I'm not saying that to be uh, you know, crass or anything like that, but just because someone has matured physically doesn't mean they've matured spiritually. No. You know, I've seen this firsthand a lot in my life as a pastor, as a servant of God, being in a church, um, growing up in a, in a pastor's home. Um, you know, I, I think I was kind of naive uh, when I first went into ministry. And here's what I mean. Um, I just believed that everyone that was in church was like a true follower of Christ like they should be. I mean, I, I just believed, oh man, this person's been in church for 36 years, so they definitely love God and live for God all of the time. Until I started getting to know some of those people. Like, wait, what? Why are you acting like that? I thought you were a Christian. I mean, I didn't necessarily say it to them, but I'm sure my face gave it away like, what? what? <laughs> you know, sadly, many modern Christians 
adults are very childish in their thinking. And while this should be expected from a new believer, a baby Christian, many Christians remain childish long after they should have matured. While every Christian starts off as a baby Christian, some Christians remain that way. And I think this is one of the things that drives me the craziest as a pastor. When church members act in an immature way. Anybody ever known an immature Christian or someone that's acted in an immature way in church? Michael's got his hand up. Are you referencing yourself? Yeah. Okay, very good. We've all known people like that, right? That acted in a very immature way. Let me help you with something tonight. Let me give you some insight. One of the biggest ways to tell whether someone is spiritually mature versus immature is their ability to handle correction. Write that down. One of the biggest ways to tell whether or not someone is spiritually immature versus mature is their ability to handle correction. How many have ever been corrected? Anybody? All of us, right? Uh, I, I don't like to have to correct church members. I, I don't like it. There's times where I've had to do it. There's times where I've had to be corrected. And I think back at my life in ministry, when I worked with my dad, when I worked with my father-in-law. And there were many instances where when I was corrected, you know how I responded? Oh man, thank you so much for that. I really appreciate that. I'm, you're just, you want the best for me, dad. So I'm just going to try to grow and, and listen and learn. I was like, no, I, I didn't handle, I, I didn't act that way. Sometimes, sadly, I blew off the handle. Well, who do you think you are, dad? I'm a lot more spiritually mature than you. I mean, I've been to Bible college. I mean, I got a master's degree. That means something, I think. I know everything about God's Word. It's kind of like Nate the other day. Uh, he's too much like me in some ways, but um, I was telling him, I was like, Nate, you don't know everything. He's like, yes, I do. No, you don't. Yes, I do. And man is always like, why are you arguing with a five-year-old? Because I am right, and he is not. So <laughs> hey, uh, it, it never goes anywhere, but I'm like, Nate, only God knows everything. Well, I know everything too. No, you don't. Uh, anyway, anyway. But one of the biggest ways to tell whether someone is spiritually immature versus spiritually mature is their ability to handle correction. And again, I look back at my own life, and there were times where, uh, especially my dad and my father-in-law, they got on me for something in ministry that I was doing wrong or something that they saw that needed to be corrected. And there were many instances, and I could be here all night talking about those, where I flew off the handle. I didn't respond in a way that I should have responded. So you know what that showed? I was spiritually immature. Now, there were also times where when they corrected me, I realized, you know what? It's not just because they don't like me. I think they're actually trying to help me be the best that I can be. And when I responded in a way of understanding that, I had a lot more joy. <laughs> I wasn't as frustrated. I wasn't as angry. And on the flip side, I've also corrected people that blew off the handle. Or when you tried to help them with something, it didn't go well because who are you to help them? They've arrived. And I've also seen it on the other side. But really, here's the truth. If someone is trying to help us in our Christian faith and walk, how should we respond? We should respond saying, you know what? I haven't arrived. I don't know everything I need to know. And I've, I've learned this in my life, and I'm still learning this, that everyone is my teacher. What I mean is everyone can teach me something. Even if, they're, even if they're more immature than me, 
They can still teach me something, right? They can teach me principles, good and bad. But when someone is trying to help you and offer correction, should you just blow up at them? Who do you think you are? You don't know anything. Or should you know? I don't necessarily like what they're saying, but maybe they have a point. And I've definitely learned that as a pastor with some meetings that I've had. The Ron has been in some of those meetings. Sometimes I wanted to respond in a negative way. Sometimes I just, you know what? I'm going to try to be like Christ, humble myself. That's a hard thing to do. It's a very hard thing to do to humble yourself, especially when someone is going off on you and someone is attacking you. But I I look back, even just four years, trust me, it's not puffing myself up, but I look back and I see my own spiritual maturity growing and developing because as I get closer to Christ, I learn what Christ would do in those situations, and that's how I try to respond. And do I always know? But that's what a Christian should be. And again, going back to that correction thing, I know I'm spending some time on this, but if we're always blowing up when someone is trying to correct us and love and help us, all we're doing is showing just how spiritually immature we really are. And this is a mark of a healthy church, spiritual maturity. I mean, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 11, when I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Let me ask this question, and we'll move on. Why do you think some Christians remain spiritually immature when they should have already matured and grown up? Let me ask it again. Why do you think some Christians remain spiritually immature when they should have already matured and grown up? That's really good. They don't pay attention a lot of times to what the teaching is. It's very good. Yes. Sure, no one's mind is way out yonder right now, right? <laughs> yes. That's really good. What else? Why, why do you think uh, some Christians remain spiritually immature when they already should have matured and grown up? Anybody else? Laziness? Yeah, that's, spiritual laziness is good. Michael? They're doing their own personal study. Yeah. Aren't doing their own personal study? That's good. Yes. They use their influence to avoid Oh, that's good. I spent a lot of time talking about that. They use their influence to avoid correction. I like that. What else? What else? What are some reasons that you think Christians remain spiritually immature when they already should have matured? Anyone? I think sometimes mature Christians drop the ball. That's really good, too. It is. And so then we as the more mature Christians can be spiritually lazy as well. Yeah. What basically what she was saying is a lot of times the spiritually mature Christians drop the ball. And instead of teaching and training, in a sense we go back to a, a parent-child relationship. You can't expect your five-year-old to just develop on their own, right? I can't expect Nate to just grow up on his own and learn everything he needs to learn without the instruction. It's my job as a dad, it's Amanda's job as the mom to help him, to instruct him, and same is true in the church. It's those that are spiritually mature that know who Jesus is, that know the faith, that know the doctrines of God's word, to teach and instruct and train other people. Yet how often has the ball been dropped? A lot of times, right? Well, it's someone else's job. Again, that's why we pay the pastor. 
I mean, it's, it's his job, but what did we talk about last week? Every church should have an every member ministry, right? So if it's every member ministry, shouldn't it be our job collectively to teach and train and instruct? Oh, you know, they're, they're really struggling with this. Let me, let me try to help them. Hey, how dare you act that way? Don't you know anything? You think that's going to help anyone? No. It's teaching them in love. Again, even going back to the, the, the parent-child relationship, we all know or we've learned, those that have kids, how to deal with our kids. Sometimes you raise your voice at all with a child, it doesn't do well, right? They just shut you off. Sometimes that's what they need because they're hard-headed, like myself and my oldest. Anyway, but you can't respond to everyone the same. You have to learn how they act, how they react towards certain principles. But again, this goes back to those false teachers because Paul doesn't want them to be tossed about and false teachers creep in and prey on the gullible, uh, saying things like, all religions are the same. Are all religions the same? No. Or, hey, if you're a good person, you'll go to heaven. Pretty sure the Bible is clear on that. Or this is a good one. Believe in the idea of a resurrection, not a literal body, bodily resurrection. That's false. It's not just the idea of a resurrection. Jesus truly did resurrect, right? He rose from the grave. That's very key. That's very important. Or, well, the Bible is just one among many religious books. It's, you know, you can just kind of take and choose what you want. That's false. I mean, those are just some, some simple things. But look, there are a lot of programs in a church. But you know what one of the main programs of a church should be? I think I might have this already in your notes. The main program of a church is to turn baby Christians into mature followers of Jesus. To help people grow in the faith. The maturing Christian is not tossed about by every religious novelty that comes along. You know, there's a lot of things that you can... Uh, let me see here. Well, let me just ask this. How do you think you can tell a mature Christian versus an immature Christian? What are some marks that maybe you've seen in your own life or in the life of someone else? Let's ask that question. Justin? What they talk about. What they talk about. That's very good. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I understand not every conversation is always just going to be right at the Bible, but if the Bible and what God's Word is teaching you in your life never creeps up in the conversation, that's a good sign right there. We're always talking about sports or the weather or politics or this or that. It shows maybe we're not really spiritually mature. What else? That's, that's really good. What else? What are some other signs that you can tell a difference between a mature versus an immature Christian? Anyone? Oh, that's really good. An immature Christian is very easily aggravated by almost everything in the church. And I know no one in here is easily aggravated, right? You guys are like looking down like, nope, it's not me. It's that person over there. Right? That's, that's good though. Uh, really, I mean, why, why do we get aggravated? Just like, again, go back to Nate. Why does he get aggravated so much when I try to get on him? Because he's not mature. He can't handle some things. What, what are some other things? Michael, I know you're just dying to say something. How they deal with tragedy? That's good. What else? Brother Alan? Yeah. Would you say listening, not listening to false teachers? Or listening? Yes, listening to false teachers versus the, the truth. Yes, that's good. What else? What are some signs that we can tell a difference between a spiritually mature versus immature? This is important because we need to understand this. Yes. 
Willing to serve? That's very good. That's very good. What else? How they react to everyday life. How they conduct themselves in life. Uh, reaction is, I mean, that, that's a good point right there entirely. I mean, if you're always reacting <laughs> when things go wrong, instead of, okay, how can I assess this situation? You're always getting mad at someone or this or that, and it shows spiritually immature individual Christian. What else? Maybe two or three more. Yes? Yeah, I think mature Christians are soul winners. Immature, in a sense, it shows that they're really not concerned about the lost, right? And, well, I'm afraid. I I don't know what to say. Well, we'll try to help you. Help you grow in your faith. And really, all of us are fearful. But God hasn't given us the spirit of fear, right? He's given us power and love and of a sound mind. That's good. Maybe one or two more. What What are some signs that you can tell a difference between a spiritually mature versus an immature Christian? Anybody? Yeah. And but I, I, I do I see this a lot where someone gets frustrated with someone and instead of first of all you should pray about it. Yeah. And check your own heart. And then secondly, if it's still there, then you need to go to them and not to someone else to seek advice because the Bible has already given the advice of what you should do. Correct, yeah. The Bible is pretty clear. And if we're not following the Bible and we're following what we want to do, then it just yeah, it's 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 a it's a mark for sure. I just kind of wrote one thing down. Immature Christians cry a lot. (laughs) You think about it. They cry, they whine, they complain, right? About everything. About anything that they don't like, or they weren't told, or they should have known that. It just shows the mark of an immature Christian. Let's continue on. A couple more things will be done tonight. Maturity involves truth joined with love. Maturity involves truth joined with love. Verse 15, but speaking the truth in love, thank you, may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. All right, it's a tough question here. How many have ever spoken the truth? All right, two, four, five people. All right, come on, people. Everyone should have spoken the truth tonight. Bunch of liars. Yeah. <laughs> All of us have spoken the truth. Now, how many have ever spoken the truth not in love? Yes. I think all of us should raise our hand. Um, again, we're, again, a lot, of, a lot of engagement. This is good. Let's just ask you, why do you think it's important to speak the truth in love? I'll, I'll reveal some things here in a minute, but why do you think it's important to speak the truth in love? Get a more positive reaction, yeah? Yeah, and you're more kind. More kind? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they might not shut down. Exactly. That's good. Uh, again, we've all spoken the truth, but just because it's truth, is it always something we should say? Again, we have to try to help our, our kids with this uh, right now. I know 
Nate's even had you know situations like this. He sees someone out in the public, and like, oh man, that person's fat. Like, okay, yeah, that <laughs> might be the truth, but you gotta, yeah, the whole face palm and digging a shovel and like turn the cart around. Like, oh, he wasn't talking about you. Talking about my grandpa, no, or whatever, you know. <laughs> or man, or I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm just gonna stop. But anyway, uh, I think you guys understand some of those things that happen. Uh, they speak the truth, but it shouldn't be said. Speaking the truth in love, and there's a difference, right? There's a difference of just speaking the truth to someone and speaking in love. And you can tell if someone is actually trying to help you in love because they want what's best for you. It's not like, hey, you're an immature Christian. All right, I spoke the truth in love, right? No. Hey, I've seen some things in your life that probably aren't really the mark of a true disciple. I think there's some struggles here. Is that a better way to maybe talk to someone? Yeah. You're trying to help them. You're trying to show them from God's Word what the truth is. Christians must always remember the centrality of love. Look, most little children don't know how to blend love and truth. They just spit out whatever's on their mind. Again, that person's fat. Okay, they might be fat, but you don't have to say that. Or eh, Never mind. Let's keep going on, but I've heard this said before, and this is true. Truth without, br- truth, sorry, truth without love is brutality, but love without truth is hypocrisy. Truth without love is brutality, just being brutal. I'm just going to be brutally honest with this person because they need it. That's not what Paul is saying. Truth without love is brutality, but love without truth is hypocrisy. Well, I'm just going to love on this person. I know they're doing wrong. I know there's sin in their life, but I'm not going to hit on that. Doesn't say in Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Especially other brothers and sisters in Christ. If they're going down a wrong path, isn't it our job and responsibility to tell them? Yes. Yes. But how often do we drop the ball on that? I just don't want to offend them. Yes? Well, my experience is, is the difference of being prideful and humble. Yeah? I love you. You're humble. You teach them and you explain to them. But if you go with pride, you're going to dig a hole for them and yourself. That's it. That's good, Danny. That's really good. That difference between pride and humbleness and humility. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're, you're not like, hey, I'm better than you, so let me help you out. I think it's kind of what he's referencing. No, it's I truly want what's best for you. Because I've suffered. I, I've made some mistakes in my life, and I don't want you to follow on the same path. And I think of that, I think of you know, the series that we started on Sunday with uh, Solomon. Solomon is trying to instruct his son, hey, don't make the same mistakes that I made. Don't follow the same path. And, and we've all done that, right? Those that have had kids, hey, I messed up. <laughs> Please don't do this. Because I want what's best for you. See, that's really good. But here's the idea of what Paul is trying to get across in verse 15. Maturity involves truth-telling, truth-telling, truth-maintaining, and truth-doing love. Again, often when parents are raising their kids, they try to shield them from the truth in order to protect them. Because knowing the truth will hurt them, they think. But the mark of maturity is when we are able to share the truth with fellow Christians and do it in love. Look, I can't just always withhold the truth from my children because I'm trying to protect them. I have to share the truth with them, but I have to share it in love and help them 
understand some things. Look, I want people to know that Eagle Drive Baptist Church is an authentic church, that we're trying to follow the principles of God's Word, that, that we focus on biblical teaching and preaching from God's Word, but we also focus on loving others better than ourselves and showing them the truth with love. Hey, you're a sinner. You're going to hell. That, that might be true, but I'm sure those that have witnessed the people understand that's probably not the best way to witness to someone. Now, people have been saved that way, but showing them in a loving way, hey, where you're going is not a great path. And I just want to help you to be the best that you can be. Now, don't answer this out loud, but are you, as a Christian, child of God, known for truth and love? I hope so. Or are you just known for just spitting the truth out, whether you offend someone or not? Well, if that's you, then that's the mark of an immature Christian. But if you're doing it in love, it's the mark of a mature Christian. And the last thing is this, verse 16. From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted, by the which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working and the measure of every part, Make an increase of the body into the edifying of itself in love. Maturity involves cooperation and contribution. Maturity involves cooperation and contribution. Paul goes back to the body metaphor. Every member is a limb or a joint. Every member is to contribute what he or she has. As members of the body, of the one body and the local body, we belong to each other. We affect each other. We need each other. Each believer, no matter how insignificant he or she may appear, has a ministry to other believers. The body grows as individual members grow. But if individual members aren't growing, is the body truly growing? No. And here's an important truth that we need to remember as we kind of close this out. We are dependent on Christ. We are dependent on Christ, or we should be dependent on Christ, who is the head. But we are also dependent on one another. Which means we need one another. We need to encourage one another. We need to edify one another. We need to build one another up, not tear each other down. We need each other to bear our burdens and, and share things. Look, these past 16 verses have just been a spiritual health checkup. An isolated Christian cannot minister to others nor can they minister to themselves. And it's impossible for the gifts to be ministered either way. So then spiritual unity, as we talked about, is not something we manufacture. It's something we already have in Christ and must protect and maintain it. A couple more things and we're done. Truth unites, but lies divide. Love unites, but selfishness divides. The goal in the Christian life is always, should always be Jesus Christ. He is the goal. He is the end goal. You know, we're a very health-craved society, are we not? But more importantly, we've got to think about our spiritual health. And if I were to ask you to do a spiritual health assessment test, how spiritually healthy are you? I hope you're 
on the way to becoming healthy, but if you're always getting mad and offended at any little thing, as some of the things were suggested tonight, it shows your immaturity and you need to grow and mature. Let me ask these last couple questions and we'll be done. What responsibility do you have as a Christian, as a child of God, what responsibility do you have to the local church? Someone tell me. To be faithful. It's good. What else? Support it. Yes, it's very good. What else? To be an active part. To be an active part. Inactive? No, active. She said active. <laughs> to be an active part of it. Yes. What else? What responsibility do you have as to the local church? Pray for it. Pray for it. Yes. What else? Maddie? To be there for each other. Be there for each other. That's good. What else? Help teach, yes. What else? Be ready to fight for it. Be ready to fight for it. That's key. We fight against each other, but sometimes we don't fight for what needs to be fought for. Uh, One or two more. What responsibility do you personally have to the local church? Give your tithe. Yes, that's important. Yes. Not to be dependent just solely upon church staff. Oh, yeah, not to just be dependent solely on the church staff as an every member ministry. What were you saying, Miss Dean? Ties and missions, yes, just giving. Giving of yourself and giving of what God has given you back to the local church. That's what helps the church go forward. And then this. This is more of a personal question. But how would you describe the health of your local church? I think it's good. I think it is too. But isn't there a lot of room to improve still? Yes. Just like in anything. So I think our church is a lot more healthy today than it was four years ago when I came. But we still have a long way to go. And we can't be content with where we are. We have to realize that there's still a lot more room to grow. No matter how long you've been in church, no matter how many years you've been saved, no matter how many years you've been serving, you still have room to grow. And that is the mark of a truly healthy Christian individual realizing that they haven't learned everything they need to learn. And until Christ calls us home, there's still more to learn. The core truth of this whole lesson series so far has been this. The result of a church's unity and diversity is their maturity. The result of a church's unity and diversity is their maturity. If a church is not unified, it's because they're not diverse, which means they're not showing their uniqueness and using their gifts. But they're also not going to be mature. All three of these to go together. If a church is mature, they're also going to be unified. And they're also going to be very diverse in the gifts that they have and the gifts that God has given them.